He is risen. Very good. I'll do that again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So especially on today, as you greet each other in the Lord, uh, say he is risen to each other to remind each other about the, the glory of the resurrection. Praise God that we uh, don't serve a, a do-nothing God. We serve a, a God who has unparalleled power to enable us to enjoy salvation, which is amazing, and to face challenging circumstances. Praise the Lord for that. Be praying for that uh, committee. I went through that um, at the front end at Placerita, and it's a very demanding task, and they need wisdom from on high. And uh, just pray for clarity and, and their parts and for the candidates. You know, when you, when you have a, looking for a pastor, you have two imperfect groups. You have a, a couple, sinners, and you have a church full of sinners, right? And so you're trying to figure out, are we pursuing the Lord? Are we, is this a person, is this a church, or is this a, a family that has the strengths and weaknesses that will fit here? They have a commitment to the Word, to, to a relationship with God, to His glory, and just wisdom that uh, out, of, out of all the candidates of, of men and families who honor Him, not everybody fits in every setting, and you're trying to figure that out. So pray for God's direction. Praise the Lord, though. It's fun to see how God provides. Uh, the church I was at, Placerita, has a vote this morning for a candidate they're considering as senior pastor. And uh, we'll pray for God's will there. Well, my, my oldest son is with me today, Michael. Thank you for coming, and he's a, a blessing. We have eight children, as you probably have heard. He's the oldest of them, and uh, glad for his company today. I'm going to, uh, the message I have, you'll see in the, in the bulletin, is Isaiah 41, refuge offered by the resurrected Savior. I'm an Old Testament guy in particular. I do preach out of New Testament passages, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but I wanted to, to do something from an Old Testament side of things, since in the Resurrection Sunday, quite often you're walked through very important narratives in the Gospel accounts about the resurrection of Christ. I wanted to kind of have a spinoff of his power as a resurrected Lord that relates to our, our lives in a practical way. And so we're going we're gonna to do that this morning. So maybe open your Bibles to Isaiah 41, and then we'll look at that. Let's pray together first, though. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to be together for life and health, even for uh, the beauty of this day. But most importantly on this day, Lord, we thank you that your Son came to earth as an expression of your love lived a perfectly sinless life, and yet died a horrific death, not because of his own sins, but because of ours. He experienced the inexpressible agony of separation from you, his father who he had spent eternity in absolute perfect communion with. And he gave up his life. He died on our behalf, buried in a tomb, we thank you, Lord, you didn't stay there in an absolutely unparalleled way. Something has never happened before or since. He, by the power of God, broke the bonds of death, rose to life, and eventually ascended to your right hand. We thank you for that. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ today in a special way, knowing that it is an important part of the life we can live today as your children and even our reception of that salvation. Help us to be encouraged 
that we don't just serve a good teacher, a moral man, a hero of some kind, but we have the privilege of being in a relationship by faith and repenting of our sins with the Almighty God of the universe who through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that if if you think about the people that are here and you know their hearts, I pray that if anyone here is holding on to their sin, you'd help them to see its emptiness, to seek forgiveness. Those who might be discouraged with a set of circumstances, to be encouraged and blessed by your greatness and your love and your power. I do pray that you would help each one in this process of looking for a pastor to be strengthened for the task before them in spite of its many demands. Lord, I pray we'd be more able to live bright lives in a dark world because of the resurrection. Well, thank you for that. And then, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their Heavenly Father, their lives have not been transformed by the resurrected Lord and the salvation he offers, I pray that they would understand their desperate need for salvation and sense the weight of their sin and talk to one of us about what it means to have a life transformed by the gospel, to repent of sin and to trust that Christ's death and the cross of Calvary is absolutely sufficient to provide for the forgiveness of their sins and to guarantee eternity with the Heavenly Father. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you think about Isaiah 41 and the refuge offered by the resurrected Savior, I'd like us to kind of set the backdrop for the gospel accounts for a moment and then migrate back to Isaiah 41. In that regard, few of us have ever experienced the trauma of living under some kind of an oppressive government that's sourced in a, in a country outside of our own. Few Christians in America have ever been forced by the government to, to compromise their convictions. We've not witnessed numerous uh, religious leaders executed for their faith. Although we've not faced those kinds of pressures at this point in time, the nation of Israel in biblical times did know what oppressive, an oppressive government was like. It's the various times of the subjects. They were the, the, under the thumb of the Egyptian, Assyrians, Babylonians, Medo-Persians, and the Romans. Just about 60 years before the birth of Christ, the Romans gained the upper hand in the Middle East and ruled with an iron fist. At various junctures in their reign, Roman rulers or their appointed functionaries, governors, severely oppressed the Jewish people. They erected their despised banners in the precincts of the temple, which doesn't doesn't strike us that much. A banner which shows an eagle, let's say, a, a sign of a Roman legion. But this was an offense to the Jews who interpreted the second commandment to prohibit any such imagery in the, in the area of the, of the temple. The point is it rattled their cage. Even early on in, in their, their conquest of the area, they sprinkled blood over the temple altars, desecrating to the horror of the Jews that, that altar. So many Jews in, the, in, in various times of life and in the Roman period in general longed for national independence once again, some for political reasons, some for spiritual or religious re- reasons. And it is against that backdrop of languishing under the oppressive rule of the Romans that Christ's earthly ministry shows up. And his activity stimulated the interest of many people for various reasons. As he performed miracle after miracle in different parts of Israel, growing numbers began to consider something really important. They began to wonder if this might be the long-promised Messiah. These miracles he did weren't just, um, you know, the dog and pony show. They weren't magic tricks. They weren't just things done to make somebody happy. 
They were done as credentials of his being the Messiah. Isaiah 35 had said that the promised Messiah would heal the lame and cause the blind to see and help the deaf hear and bring the dead to life. And this interest in Christ's ministry and his potential function as the Messiah grew until it reached a climax in the few days leading up to his crucifixion. It was like a fevered pitch. So he's from Galilee, and he'd be ministering up there in the last, few, the last few months of his life, and he's coming down south through the area called Perea on the east side of the Jordan River, and he crosses the Jordan River and comes to Jericho. And as he approaches the city of Jericho, he's, he's, a, he's, he's walking down the road. There are two blind men on the side of the road. One of them is blind, Bartimaeus, and he hears that Jesus is coming. And what does Bartimaeus do? He says, Jesus, you son of David, have mercy on me. And the son of David, isn't he's David's boy because his dad is Joseph. It was a messianic designation. Jesus, the promised Messiah, have mercy on me. And because this man believed, the Lord restored his sight. Yes, wanting to help this blind man, but it was a credential of who he was. He was the God-sent one with divine power to do these things. And so he comes through Jericho, then climbs that 4,000 feet up, to the, up to the, near the ridge at the top of the Mount of Olives, looking down into Jerusalem. And right before he gets to the top of the ridge, he stops at a place called Bethany. And there he has some friends, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, their home, but Lazarus had died. And Jesus, in an absolutely stupendous fashion, which was again another credential of who he was, raised Lazarus from the dead. I bet you that news spread. The grapevine was buzzing. And then the next day, he comes over the top of that hill, the top of Mount of Olives, and is starting down that hill and sees the vista of Jerusalem before him. And you have Matthew 21. I'm not going to read those verses, but as Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, people gathered in a, in a processional, if you will, before him and laid down palm fronds and, and their coats, an entrance that would normally be given to a, to a person of royal, of royal pedigree. And in verse 9 of Matthew 21, it says, Hosanna to the son of David, the promised Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna means please save, deliver now. They're asking for deliverance. But the gathered crowd had high hopes that Jesus might be that promised Messiah to be their deliverer, but I'm sure there are those in the crowd who are looking for a political deliverance. Get rid of those no good, dirty, rotten Romans. Bring us some relief from Roman tyranny. Give us refuge from the raging storm of Roman oppression. But he had another kind of deliverance in mind for his people. So after he comes down the hill and enters the city of Jerusalem, that same Lord who is acclaimed as the potential deliverer of his people has an amazing and even a challenging week after that declaration was made in Matthew 21. And the climax of that week occurs several days later with an eternally important set of events, Thursday and following in particular. And I'm just summarizing here. After Jesus finishes several days of ministry in Jerusalem, he meets with his disciples in the upper room and they share a a last meal together, and Judas, one of the twelve, betrays Jesus to the Roman authorities, and a, Roman, a, a, a complement of Roman soldiers meets Jesus down in the Garden of Gethsemane and takes him captive. Judas planting the kiss of betrayal on Jesus' cheek. 
And those Roman soldiers shuffled Jesus between, first of all, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious authorities who determined he had he committed blasphemy and deserved death, but they couldn't do, they couldn't perform a death penalty. It was not allowed to them by the Romans. And so they took them from the Sanhedrin over to Pilate to have him deliver the death penalty. He refused. He found no guilt in Jesus to justify that. Sent him over to Herod Antipas, like a, a sub-king under the Romans in a certain part of Israel. And Herod Antipas wanted the, wanted the magic trick. He wanted Jesus to do a miracle for him, to impress him. And Jesus was silent. So Herod said, I'll go on back to Pilate. So by early morning, he goes back to Pilate. He doesn't want to see him. doesn't want to deliver the penalty, and then to the shock of shocks when he says, here's the custom of the day. You could have Barabbas or a no-good, dirty, rotten criminal, a dedicated criminal who had harassed many of these people and taken their things. You can have Barabbas or Jesus. And he fully expected the crowd to say, we'll take Jesus. You can keep Barabbas and crucify him tomorrow. But the Jewish authorities had, had, had caused the crowd to cry for the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Pilate caves grants the death penalty for Jesus. They drag him off where he's horribly beaten, carries the cross from probably the Antonia near the Temple Mount and up to Golgotha, where his, the nails are driven into his wrists and his feet. He's placed upon the cross, and he suffers for hours. And as he nears the end of his life, he that agonizing cry, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm a, I'm a husband of a wife of 32 years, a blessing. And we've had sweet fellowship. We've had a, a great marriage and have a great marriage. But it isn't without tension. I've blown it at times, right? I've had to say I'm sorry. You know, I've been impatient. But my little period of time of 32 years of marriage with a, a great wife and a, a really good relationship but we're sinners. Compare that, to, and, and if, if, if there was an absolute chasm in our relationship, it'd be a heartbreak. It'd be a pain that I can't and would dare not imagine. Jesus, the trin- part of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Father, for eternity, it's farther back than we can even conceptualize, for eternity had enjoyed absolutely unbroken, perfect communion with the other members of the Trinity. And here, bearing on that cross that day, bearing our sin, there came the point in time, and because he bore our sin, God the Father had to turn his face away, if you will, from the Son. There was a break in that absolutely perfect communion. The agony of that I can't even begin to describe. And soon after that mournful statement, he said, it is finished. Breathe is last. Body is buried. Stone is rolled in front of the tomb. Seal is placed on it. He's done. But praise God, in his providence, by his power, he breaks that seal, rolls the doorway through angels, and Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's resurrected. The dead has been made alive. Never has it ever happened in any human life. And the only ones who have been brought to life from the dead have been done by the power of God in some miraculous fashion, like Lazarus just a few days before. 
So he, he demonstrates, Jesus Christ demonstrates his absolute, his absolute incomparable power by doing something totally unparalleled. He rose from the dead. And what I want to think about it with the time we have today is here are a couple of passages that in the New Testament I'll just read to you, then we'll go to Isaiah 41. Here are a couple of passages that refer to the power demonstrated through his resurrection. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter writes, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A new birth into a living hope. Praise God. And unto an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Praise God, our salvation is possible today because of Christ's conquest of death. He is risen. There you go. Another passage, Philippians 3, and you realize the whole give and take is not normal in the middle of a message, so I'll just rock your world a couple of times and have you say that back to me. Just to drive home that the central idea I'm talking about this morning is what God can do as the God who resurrects, that kind of power. Another passage is in Philippians 3.10 where Paul writes, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul and this is where I want to focus this morning. Paul wanted to know the power of the resurrection, the enablement of God, so that he could live a life that was like Christ, a life for God's glory, a life that was a bright light, a life that impacted the world around him, that was related to resurrection power. So the ability for us to live a life of purity and righteousness in the midst of a sinful world draws on the power of the resurrection. Praise God that he conquered death because he lives we can live for his glory. And, and, and what I want you to realize is I think about the refuge God offers us based on an Old Testament passage. What I want you to think about is this. When God offers to be our refuge, when he offers to enable us to face difficult circumstances, he does not offer that enablement as the powerless, impotent, do-nothing God. No. Instead... He offers us strength. He provides us refuge as the God of all power. Yes, as the one who demonstrated the power to have his son rise from the dead. Sometimes the way we live in the face of difficult circumstances, it seems like we have a pretty lame God. He can't do big things. No, God offers to enable us to live lives for his glory, even in the face of challenging circumstances. I want you to be encouraged by that. And we'll talk later about it, but the problem is normally our embracing of that, our making that our own. So I don't know today, friends, if you're sailing on a stormy sea of life and maybe you're at a place where the pressures and trials of life are weighing down on your shoulders. Are there moments when maybe you think you can go no further? Could you be characterized like a ship tossed about by a a raging sea. What does God ask of us as his children in times like that, in tough times and demanding circumstances? How is it that God expects us to continue on and to continue on for his glory in the face of difficulties that stretch us further than we could have imagined possible? Well, the good news is the way that the Lord offers us to do that is by offering us refuge and strength in the face of our storm. 
Christ offers us refuge. He provides a haven for his own in the midst of life's challenges. But you know, that's not anything new or profound in general. If I asked you, yes or no, do you believe that Jesus Christ offers refuge, you would probably all say yes, of course. You know that. But that's not our problem, is it? The question isn't, does Jesus offer refuge? The question is, is he my refuge? Am I making him my refuge? As I go through difficult times, is the last place I look up or the first place I look up because that's how I live my life? He offers us refuge. So the challenge before us, as we're going to see this morning, like Israel of old, is that we must rely on our God and make use of the refuge he offers us in the face of life's challenges, to be theocentric, to be God-focused in how we live our lives. To not just turn to him in the last extremity, but as a pattern of life. And the Lord promises to be the one who provides us wisdom and strength and stability as we face challenges. He died and rose again as a demonstration of his limitless power. And through his death and resurrection, we can, yes, enjoy salvation by faith and face difficult circumstances through that strength. So let's look at Isaiah 41, 8 to 10. And I'm going to abbreviate my front porch for this passage just to get to verses 8 to 10. I want to summarize a handful of things. The book of Isaiah is written to God's people at a real bad time in their history. Uh, Israel had been under, you know, 12 tribes, under one king. Solomon died. His son Rehoboam came to the throne. They divided into a, a southern kingdom with two tribes, a northern kingdom with 10 tribes. All the kings of the northern kingdom were bad kings, were wicked kings, and eventually were taken off into exile by Assyria. And then for about 150 years after that, the southern kingdom continued, and eventually they were taken off into exile by Babylon. The prophet Isaiah focuses his ministry to the southern two tribes, the southern kingdom, who kind of went back and forth between righteousness and wickedness. And at this point in time, it's a dark day for the southern kingdom, and Isaiah comes to pronounce his judgment on his people for their covenant treachery. In the first 39 chapters of the book, he, he hammers God's people for the coming judgment. The, the judgment is coming because of their sin. And then he does something really unique in the, in the second half of the book, in chapters 40 to 66. He wants to let them know there's, there's, the end of the story is different. It doesn't end with judgment at the hands of, of Babylon. There's restoration before them. And so Isaiah, the prophet who lives in the end of the 8th, early 7th century B.C., in, in chapter 40 to 66, he looks forward to an event beyond his death in, in, in several years in the future. So after he dies and Israel continues their, their sad decline, eventually exhausts God's patience, and God brings the Babylonians to judge them and take them off into exile, rips them out of the land of promise and takes them to Babylon. Tick-tock, tick-tock, forward. Isaiah goes beyond that and goes toward the end of that exile period, and he's, he's talking to that audience. He's talking to Jews who are languishing in Babylonian exile in Isaiah 40 to 66. He doesn't say your punishment will be over. He's saying your punishment is just about over. Your sins are forgiven. And I'm going to bring you home, the Lord says through the prophet. I'm going to bring you back to the land of promise. And it seems like there are some skeptics among God's people. Right. Where have you been the last 70 years? And the prophet labors to point that God wasn't absent, that his judgment of them was just as much a part of his plan as his future restoration of them. And he wants them to know he will, in fact, bring them home. He is able and interested in doing that. Read chapter 40 sometime. 
where he demonstrates that he is the absolutely incomparable God of the universe in control of all elements of the universe who will do exactly what he says. But what does he demand? Faith, dependence, those who hope in the Lord, who rely on the Lord, will renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles and walk and not, run and not be weary and walk and not faint. And then he wants them to understand that this God is worthy of their worship and obedience. And he's unlike the alleged gods of Babylon that were appealing to God's people to worship them. The prophet Isaiah wants him to know that their God is absolutely unparalleled. And how does he demonstrate that? What's the litmus test for God's deity? Well, Yahweh alone is the one who predicts and brings to pass history, events. He doesn't just talk about what might happen. He makes it happen. And he gives an example of that, several examples of that. And one of them is this call of Cyrus from the east, from the north who will come and deliver God's people from the, land of, from the land of Babylon. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute as we look at Isaiah 41, verses 1 to 7, just for a, a second. In Isaiah 41, 1 to 7, leading up to our passage for today, the, the Lord demonstrates through the prophet his absolute sovereignty in the world by talking about his control of Cyrus, the king of Medo-Persia. Verse 2, who has stirred him up from the east? Who calls righteousness to his feet? The Lord hands nations over to him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, like wind-driven stubble with his bow. Now he's identified, this, this promised one is identified in chapter 44 and 45 as King Cyrus, king, future king of Medo-Persia. His name is announced 150 years before he's even on the page of human history as the one who will deliver God's people from the land of of Babylon. And this one is going to crunch all nations that stand opposed to what God intends to accomplish through him as his servant. In fact, look what happens when people hear about it in verse 5. When they see this one coming from the east, this one appointed by God to deliver his people, the islands see and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They're terrified. Now keep that afraid and tremble in mind for a little bit. That's the response of, of the enemies of Cyrus. Now imagine with me, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, the mindset of the Babylonians at this time and as these events were played out in human history, future to Isaiah's day. I mean, Cyrus is the king of Medo-Persia. Who's enemy number one for Cyrus? Babylon, because they're the top dog. They're the ones who are in power. They're the international power of that time in the, in, in the Mediterranean seaboard. And so as, as Medo-Persia is starting to come together and Cyrus as their leader, numero uno enemy is Babylon. And he knows that Babylon is too powerful and draws on resources throughout her far-flung empire to take on head-to-head. And so Cyrus, first of all, starts by attacking Babylon at the perimeter, wiping out different sources of, of income for Babylon that helps them fund their big army. And at first, I'm sure in the in the Babylonian Gazette or whatever, you know, the news that would have come across, oh yeah, this, this area was subjugated by Cyrus and that area was subjugated by Cyrus. Okay, we have some losses. Sure, everybody expects that. But as, as those, mounts, those losses mount and the news keeps pouring in and, and Cyrus stops working at the perimeter of the Babylonian Empire, starts coming on a beeline to Babylon, can you imagine the terror mounting in the city? Oh no, we're toast. He's coming to us. And I can, I can just suggest to you that as Babylon is approaching the city of, as, as Cyrus is approaching the city of Babylon, intending on decimating the city, that's the right expectation people would have, 
There was panic and consternation raging in the city. Now think about for a minute something. Where are God's people at this time as Isaiah the prophet envisions them? Remember, Isaiah looked forward to a time when God's people would go to the bottom, be judged, Jerusalem destroyed, and the drug off in exile to where? Babylon. God's people are in Babylon. They're, they're in the crosshairs. They're right where Cyrus is coming, right where Cyrus, everybody thinks, is going to totally destroy the place to take over world domination. And the text even said he would crush and destroy every nation that stood in his way. He'll turn them to dust and to chaff or stubble. And the Jews in the city of Babylon and around them was this raging panic and consternation over the approach of Cyrus. Could have easily wondered as a rebellious nation, maybe God is going to get rid of us once and for all and not keep this promise to bring us home. And I suggest to you that Isaiah 41, 8 to 10, through that, through that passage, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, in, in direct contrast to the Gentiles who have been thrown into a panic by the approach of Cyrus, the prophet of Israel, wants to affirm to Israel that they have nothing to fear. That even in this crucible experience of being crunched, what appears to be being crunched by Cyrus, terror raging around them, looks like Extermination is before them. The prophet Isaiah wants his people to understand that God will provide them refuge. He will strengthen them for the task before them. He will enable them to face the challenge. He will deliver them. And so the Lord offers his children refuge in the face of their storm by reminding them of two important truths that I want you to Remember today, you're not facing being crunched by Cyrus of Medo-Persia, right? You're not necessarily looking at a city that's about to be decimated by some foreign power. But the same encouragement can be ours in the face of our difficulties, knowing that the Lord provides us refuge in the face of our challenges. Two things. First of all, he points their attention to the eternal relationship they enjoy with God. And secondly, he points them to the promise, the unadulterated promise of God's enablement. So look at those two things with me. First of all, the foundational relationship, verses 8 to 9, indicated by their names in verse 8 and then guaranteed by the God who chose them in verse 9. So first of all, indicated by their names in verse 8, he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, all three of these names emphasize that God's relationship with Israel was not something to be tossed away, a shallow one, but not something to be easily discarded. No, it was something of depth. It had eternal significance. It was, it was entered into and by faith. It was something God promised to be faithful to. He committed himself to this covenant relationship with his people that he would not release. Let me illustrate it this way. You know, let's say that you come over to my house, knock on the door, open the door, and my wife is standing next to me, and, hi, this is, um, what's your name again? Oh, she's my acquaintance. I wouldn't say that. Or I'd get a big old elbow on the side. You know, I would say, this is my wife, Martha Ann. And that title, wife, communicates something about the depth and the enduring nature of our relationship. 
It, it expresses something important, that this is a, a relationship the Lord willing will, will stand the test of time, that will go through the various challenges of life. It represents the fact that over 32 years ago, we committed to each other in all aspects of life. And so for, for a moment, consider the significance of these names that the Lord uses to describe his people with regard to that relationship of depth that God enjoys with his people. Look at the first two together, because they, they're paired throughout Isaiah numerous times. Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. I'm going to start with the second one. They, they point back to the early part of Israel's history. Jacob, whom I have chosen. We'll talk about why he chose them in a moment, but Jacob was at first the name of an individual, one of the, one of the sons of, of Isaac. But Jacob in Genesis 32 becomes a name for the nation. Remember, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and eventually, at that point in time, the Lord begins addressing the nation of Israel as Jacob. It becomes a national name, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And then he tells him, Israel, my servant. What was the purpose of God's choice of Israel to be a special people? Was it to bring them fame and fortune, to give them a life of abundance and bliss? No, it was to make them his servant. Now, this word servant is horribly misunderstood in our me-first world today because of certain parts of American history and, and the emphasis and the focus on me in all walks of life. The idea of being called a servant or a slave has been a word and a lifestyle to avoid at all costs. But is the Lord putting his people down by saying, Israel, my servant? Is, is Israel my loser? Is, is Israel my piece of property? No, not at all. The Lord is saying to his people, I chose you to be involved in a task for my glory, to serve the God of the universe. He had something significant he wanted to accomplish through his people. And I can only summarize here because of time, but I want you to understand that when God called his people to himself in this relationship, and he gave them his law in Exodus 20 and following, his intent was, read Exodus 19, 4 to 6, 4 through 6 sometime. His intent in giving the law to his people, and I addressed it a month or so ago in Deuteronomy 4, his intent was to enable his people to understand in tangible ways how they could live in a way that manifested God's character before the watching world. When he called Israel to himself to be his nation and he gave them his law, it wasn't to punish them, it was to give them a concrete understanding of how they could live in a way that made God big in the world. Whoa! the servant of Almighty God, the opportunity to show the world what the great God of the universe is like, sign me up. Why, why do I want to advertise meaningless things, empty things, vile things, which people in our world are pursuing? No. God chose his people to be his servant. Wow! He offered them the opportunity to live in a way that advertised the great God of the universe. But that's a relationship of depth. Jacob, whom I've chosen, Israel, my servant. He also refers to them as the descendants of Abraham, my friend. The word friend is related to the Hebrew word for love. One translation uses the term covenant partner. It isn't just a casual acquaintance. The idea of love here and friend often has the idea of a choice, even election in the Old Testament. God is emphasizing the fact that he entered into this committed relationship with Abraham. As a matter of fact, just to help you show how enduring that was, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 37, I'll, read, I'll not read it, but look at it sometime. In Deuteronomy 4, 37, he says this, Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt. 
by his presence and by his great strength. His commitment to bring his people out of this horrible experience of slavery in Egypt was driven by his commitment to be their covenant Lord. His choice of Abraham was not some casual thing. He was a, he was a fly-by-night partner. No. His commitment to his people drove him to extricate them from a humanly impossible scenario in Egypt. What I want you to see is, how could God's people be encouraged in in their storm, in the difficult circumstances? The prophet wants them to know these, these names demonstrate, refer to an enduring relationship of depth that can be their encouragement regardless of their circumstances. One more thing, and then I'll kind of bring it to home. It is also guaranteed by the God who chose them in verse 9. And that's just in this first part of the message. I didn't want to make you think I'm going to be done in three minutes. Okay, so it's, uh, it's um, evidenced by the names he uses. And then it's guaranteed by the God who chose them in verse 9. The Lord says, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant I have chosen you and not rejected you. I think in the first part of verse 9, he's referring back at least to Abraham's, God's call of Abraham from the land of the Ur of the Chaldees a long way away. It could even refer to as bringing them out of the land of Egypt in Exodus, in the book of Exodus. He takes the initiative with Abraham in calling him out of this land of of pagan worship and brings them to the land of Canaan, again indicating the depth of their relationship. And he goes on here to affirm his steadfast love for them, that he has chosen them and has not rejected them. I want you to think about something. In In what situation is Israel spiritually in Babylon? And why are they there? Did they receive a gold embossed invitation to come to a big banquet in Babylon because of their good behavior? No! Why are they in Babylon? Because they were committed to covenant treachery as a nation. They were poorly behaved. They were sinners on display. And what does the Lord say to them? Not encouraging their sin, by the way, but indicating the depth of the relationship he enjoys with them, even in spite of that treachery, because he had established this commitment with his people in in a unilateral fashion in the Abrahamic covenant. He says to them, I have not rejected you. That isn't to, to encourage sin, but it's to help God's people in the face of a difficulty to be encouraged by the depth of the relationship they enjoy with this great God. So how could they be encouraged? How could they not be afraid? Because of who they know God to be? The one who, with whom they have the solid relationship. Israel my servant Jacob, my chosen, the son of Abraham, my covenant partner, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Now, does that sound anything, is there anything familiar there to us? First Peter 2 and I were told that we're chosen. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people's own possession. Chosen to be his servants, his representatives. We're told in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We've been chosen by God and we're chosen to be his servants and God promises that we have a relationship with him that will stand the test of time. Yes, I think there's something relevant for me and for you. And what I want you to be encouraged by is life could fall apart. Life could stink. 
And that relationship is an encouragement. I would just tell you briefly, this last year has been a hard year for our family. In leaving our church and finding another church, there are just things that are part of that circumstance that we didn't want to do, and it just was a stake in our heart. No details. But I want to tell you, one of the things I've done in that year was people ask me how I'm doing, and I would say God is good. It wasn't a pithy saying. I was trying to force myself to believe that, to remember that, because I looked around, and there were lots of parts of my life where life stunk. I didn't like it at all. The choices I had to make and the, the family I had to lose in the church was just a heart ripper outer. And I want you to know that even when some circumstances in life are not what you want them to be, guess what's true? <laughs> we have an amazing relationship with the God of the universe, this great and good God that can encourage us even when the circumstances are a bum deal. And I don't know where you're at. But if you're a child of God, I want to encourage you that whatever your lot in life is, how difficult it is, rejoice that there's a God in heaven who provides you strength for each moment and each day. So the first, the first thing that the prophet does here is he points his people to the depth of the relationship they enjoy with this great God. That's part of what gives them refuge in the face of a storm, encouragement in the face of difficulty. Here's the second part of that, the promise of divine enablement in verse 10. We have God's command, first of all, do not fear, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. And just remember the context here and back up in verse 5 when, when, when the prophet talked about Cyrus coming to crunch Babylon. What's the response of the nations of the world? They feared, and they were dismayed. Understandable. And the Lord says to his people, no need to fear. No need to be dismayed. He, the Lord is saying to his people, in contrast to the panic and fright of the people around you, don't be afraid. And the, and the fear that the Lord is referring to here with the Hebrew word is not the terror of a disobedient servant standing before his master about to get cuffed on the side of the head. No, he's referring to the fright, the terror of being abandoned in the face of a catastrophe. And God is saying, no worries. Don't fear. That's not going to happen. He's addressing the fear among the Israelites that God just might turn them over to the enemy and get rid of them once and for all. You know, just to help us understand the exhortation, let me quickly summarize a couple of places where the Lord says fear not to a person. Remember Abraham, he was told he'd, have a, he'd, have a, he'd become a nation and that meant having a child. Tick-tock, tick-tock, years go by, no child. Tick-tock, tick-tock, years go by, no child. As he, as he was struggling with God's apparent failure to keep him his promise, to give him a promised son, in Genesis 15, 1, the Lord says to Abraham, what? Fear not. Trust me. I'll do what I've promised. Hagar and Ishmael, one of the bonehead ideas that Abraham and Sarah had for Abraham to go to Hagar and have a child, and it just went downhill. And eventually, Sarah made... Abram toss him into the wilderness, and they thought they're going to die for sure. Hagar is there, and she walks away from her son, puts him by a bush, and walks away because she can't bear to see him die. The Lord says to Hagar, fear not. I'm going to take care of you. Joshua, as he sees himself as a leader of God's people and going to conquer the land with, with, with divine intervention, Jericho goes really well. They attack Achan, they attack Ai, or I, and 26 men die. He's reeling from the defeat. He's, what in the world is happening here? He's discouraged. Wondering if maybe God's promise of victory wasn't 
true. And the Lord comes to Joshua and says, fear not. Trust my promise. Believe who I am. That's what you should hold on to. And just how are God's people supposed to not fear and not be dismayed in the face of the approaching storm, in the face of their difficulty? In addition to the solid relationship, the enduring relationship they have with God, the Lord reminds them of his provision. And I want you to see something here that's really fun to notice in the Old Testament in particular. It's interesting to notice how often you have fear or not is always, always followed by because. Fear or not, the promise, the what, is followed by because, the how, the grounds for not fearing. And that brings us to God's provision. So God's command and God's provision. He says in verse 10, do not fear for, because I'm with you. Do not be afraid, because for I am your God. Who he is and what he does. First of all, who he is, God's solidarity with his people. I am with you. I am your God. That's who he is. I am with you. It emphasizes the promise of God's presence, unlike the pagan gods of verses 1 to 7 who the Babylonians were worshiping, and then in the moment of controversy were, were painfully absent. We're just not there. They're empty windbags, do-nothing gods. Unlike those pagan gods who didn't have a reality, God says, I am with you. He was not a fair-feathered friend. And to the Israelite who was aware of his history, they would have brought forth a flood of illustrations. God also promised his presence to Isaac in the face of famine in Genesis 26, as Jacob was being chased by his brother Esau to kill him. And he pillowed his head in a pile of rocks. God said, I'll be with you. Moses, when he was told he was going to go before the Pharaoh of Egypt and was terrified, God promised his presence. Joshua, after he took over from Moses to lead this grumbling group of Israelites, God said he'd be with him as he was with, with Moses. To Gideon, when he was called to lead God's people in, in removing the Midianites from the land, and he felt dwarfed by the task, Heard God promise his presence. Saul, as he was in shock over being told he would be the first king of Israel, was promised God's presence in 1 Samuel 10. And then even the entire nation of Israel as they prepared for conquest of Canaan, something for which they were not humanly prepared, were promised God's presence. I'm with you. That's our God too. We can't go anywhere without his presence. He is there with us in the face of those difficulties. But he also says... This who he is, his solidarity with his people, I am with you. But the second statement is, don't be dismayed, for I am your God. It highlights God's intentions to pr protect and provide for his people. You know, this statement doesn't simply demonstrate some kind of a loose connection between Israel and their God. It isn't simply the issue of a possession. This is my pen. Okay, if I put my pen in the podium here and left it there and walked away and went home, life goes on, right? Big, no biggie. There's my son. That's, that's a horse of a different color, if you will. He's not the horse. That's an idiom. Okay. Here is my pen. There is my son. I can do without my pen. I don't want to lose my son. That's a relationship. That's a relationship I value and treasure, right? And so when we think about it, I am your God, it isn't my rabbit's foot, my good luck charm, my four-leaf clover. No, no, not at all. I am your God, he's saying, this, I'm, I've, you have a relationship with me that is unparalleled. That should be an encouragement to you. God, by the way, the Mosaic Covenant, here's the summary of the Mosaic Covenant, I will be your God, you will be my people. There's a relational core 
to the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I will be your protector. I'll care for your welfare. I'll guarantee your destiny. I will be your God. We'll be in this relationship. And that could be an, an encouragement to his people. In the day when their experience in exile, in Babylon, away from the promised land, in the day when their experience would seem to make a mockery of all they believed about themselves and their identity and what God promised to them. It was encouraging for them to hear in no uncertain terms that their God, the covenant-keeping God, was with them and willing to be called their God. I am with you. I am your God. Praise God for who he is, his solidarity with his people that is true of us today. But in addition to who he is, the Lord demonstrates another part of his provision in what he does, God's activity on behalf of his people in verse 10. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you or support you with my righteous right hand. The Lord here uses three terms that are relatively synonymous to emphasize the fact that he will be there to help them in their time of need. And it's interesting, in Hebrew, there's a particle between each of these three statements, between one and two and two and three. It's like, I will strengthen you, yes. I will help you, indeed. I will hold on to you or support you with my righteous right hand. And it gives the sense these, these statements are being piled one on top of another to reach a crescendo, to emphasize the triad as a package to drive home the fact that God will take care of them. And then the last one that says, that's kind of the climax, I will hold on to you or support you with my righteous right hand. I, you understand in the Old Testament in particular, the right hand is often representative of God's intent to intervene on behalf of his people. In Exodus chapter 15, that describes in a poetic fashion the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea as part of the Exodus from Egypt. And, and you have the, the waters that come crashing together to devastate the Egyptian army. It says there, instead of talking about the waters, it says God's righteous right hand intervened on behalf of his people and crunched the Egyptians. And God is saying here, I will support you with my right hand that delivers, my right hand that does what's right, my right hand that intervenes in a situation for God's glory. The point is God's people could could rest assured that God would do the right thing on their behalf. And here's the challenge for us, though, friends. I'll just tell you, what God determines is right isn't always what we want. I had a different kind of a plan that would be God's plan for this last year. That wasn't God's plan. So we have to embrace his providence. But we can trust that there's a God in heaven who longs to do the right thing in our lives for his glory. And the other thing is just the, the, the verbs used here in this verse 10 are verbs that demonstrate the continuous nature of what God does. He, he, the, the refuge he offers is always available. It's never hidden. Just as I wrap up, let me read a poem to you by Annie Johnson Flint. God hath not promised skies always blue, Flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain, rocky and steep, never a river, 
turgid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, undying sympathy, undying love. In a time of panic and anxiety, the Lord says to his people in Isaiah 41, I will be your refuge because of our eternal relationship, our enduring relationship, those indicated by the names he used and guaranteed by the God who chose them, I have not rejected you. He also says, I will enable you to meet each challenge you face, and they can be encouraged by who he is. I am with you, I am your God, the solidarity between God and his people, and what he does, strengthen, help, and uphold. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I'll uphold you with my right hand of deliverance. So based on Isaiah's message to his people, let me challenge you with three, three things, and I'll do it quickly. First, I would ask you, is Christ your refuge of eternal salvation? All of these marvelous truths about God's relationship with his children then and now are reserved for those who have a faith relationship with God through Christ. That relationship can only be enjoyed by those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, his provision of forgiveness at the cross of Calvary as the totally sufficient payment for your sin. He accomplished that by dying on the cross and rising again. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Have you trusted Christ to be your personal Savior, repenting of your sins, believing that he can provide you eternity in heaven? Have you made Christ your eternal refuge of salvation? Or are you like many in our world today who refuse the refuge of eternal salvation offered by the Lord through salvation in exchange for some other coveted prize in this world, but will lose all in the end? will face eternity without Christ in hell. If that's you, I talked to one of the leaders here about what it means to know Christ as Savior, to deal with your eternal destiny, to seek forgiveness of your sins, to have this relationship with the God who provides you refuge. Second, as God's child, are you resorting to Christ as your refuge in the face of life's difficulties? I mean, does the Lord promise each of us the absence of storms in life? If you think about so, pinch yourself and wake up, right? He doesn't promise us the absence of storms. Nobody offers us help in the midst of our problems. The Lord wants us to turn to Him for refuge as we seek to live lives for His glory. You think of a ship that's anchored in a harbor. When there's a storm, that ship still experiences part of that storm. It still has the big waves and it still has the wind, But the intensity of the storm is diminished because the harbor shelters the ship from the intensity of the storm. As our refuge, the Lord doesn't say he'll remove the difficulty, but he diminishes its intensity by being our grace and our strength. He wants us to come to him in dependence. Whether it be a sinful habit, a point of discouragement, a health problem, a sorrow, we can't. We cannot successfully face those challenges on our own. His arms are open to us, beckoning for us to think with a God focus, to live with a God focus, to find our refuge in Him, to revel in the truths of a relationship with a good and great God. And as the one who conquered death that we're celebrating today, He has limitless power and can bring to pass His will in our lives for His glory. Praise God for that. May he be your refuge as a believer. 
And then third, the third question is, is are you as a believer directing others to the refuge Christ offers? You see, as believers, we need to live with eternity in view. We're put here for a reason. Are you, am I taking steps to direct my unsaved friends, your unsaved friends, relatives, and others in your circle of influence to the refuge found in Christ for salvation? Are we sharing the gospel with people around us? We ought to be. Are we sensitive to the needs of believers around us who have that droop shoulder, that uh, not a lift in their step, they're just broken? Are you coming alongside them to direct their attention to the great God of the universe? Make, encourage them to make him their refuge? So, will you make him your refuge for salvation or for difficulties in life? Will you direct others to him? The prophet Isaiah says something here I think is totally relevant. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. And why can we, why is one of the reasons we can have confidence in this? He is risen. So the power of the resurrection often strength offers strength to us regardless of life circumstances. The God who brought his son to life in an unparalleled demonstration of power is the one who offers you and I strength, you and me strength, in the face of life's difficulties, to live life for his glory. May God help us to draw on that strength, to see his goodness and greatness, to be encouraged by this relationship we have with him so we can live a life that makes him big before the world around us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just the clarity of your word. And Lord, how you offer us refuge. You provide us strength for difficulties. I don't know what's going on in the hearts of the brothers and sisters here, but I imagine there are some difficulties. I pray that they would look to you Be encouraged by the relationship that stands every test of time with the God of the universe that can be our comfort even in difficult circumstances. Help us to let go of those challenges, to not hold them close, but to embrace you as our God. And then, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as our Heavenly Father, that you would not let them leave here without speaking to one of the leaders about salvation, repentance, and heaven. And I pray that as we live our lives, that we'd be able to impact the world around us to make you big, to put you on display, to live for your glory because of the power of the resurrection. We'll thank you for what you accomplish through that power in Jesus' name. Amen.